Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters restoration. I want to thank all of you for uh, all the support I've been getting from my audience, and my channel's been growing greatly. And, you know, folks, ever since the very beginning of this channel, I've been wanting to get this gentleman to come on, and we've been playing phone tag, and we've been texting each other, and uh, we've gotten to know each other through the phone, and then we finally got to meet at the Mormon History Association. <laughs> And uh, my guest here is uh, Don Bradley, author of the book, The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories. And uh, Don, welcome to the program. Thanks, Stu. Good to be here. So one of the things that, uh, you know, when I, when I cornered you at the Mormon History Association, because yeah. I thought, I'm going to get, I saw Don Bradley, and I'm, I'm tracking this guy down because I got to see him. And of course, this was before your presentation, so you're a little nervous. You're going you're to be with Bushman and everything. Yeah. And then afterwards, you gave your presentation. And I went to you and I said, I just want to explain to you that I bought this book because I watched it on Gospel Tangents, oh. and I didn't have any intention of yeah. starting a book review channel. I bought this book because I was interested in the topic, yeah. because I love, I love books. Yeah. And I just thought this is a fascinating book. So I fell in love with you because of this book. Oh. And, uh, and then the idea of doing the, the channel came back maybe a couple of years later is when I finally had the idea to do oh, the, the, okay. the channel. Um, but this was one of those books I, I ordered as soon as I watched you on Gospel Tangents. Cool. <laughs> so that's enough talking from me. <laughs> I just wanted to give a little background. We're going to talk a little bit about this book. We're actually going to have a conversation that's going to primarily be about Don's faith journey. Um, that's something you had asked to talk to me about, and yeah. I'm honored and privileged that you've given me that opportunity. Um, I guess one of the things, um, when I first got this book, um, I'm like, what message did God write on the temple wall for Abinadi to translate? Now, the reason why I have this question is because one of the things that Don did was he took the stories that people were telling about the Book of Mormon and realized that some of these were actually lost stories that didn't make it into the Book of Mormon, including even Joseph Smith making uh, some, an observation in a sermon he gave about the burial practices, I believe, mm -hmm. about yeah. that. And yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, he, so he was able to reconstruct the uh, Martin Harris's brother, Joseph Smith uh, Sr. and other sources. And the reason why I want to know what was written on that wall, uh, because that was something that was implied in Mosiah that the, the reader should know about what that message was, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you never mm -hmm. actually say, you give biblical parallels, mm -hmm. right, to that phrase. But in your mind, what do you think what that was written on that wall? So I don't know, yeah, I don't know how much sense this is going to make to listeners without um, a little more context okay. in uh, I think it's Alma 10 like verses 2 and 3 um, Alma and Amulek are preaching to the people of Ammonihah and uh, Amulek is from Ammonihah and he's, he's saying to his fellow citizens like you know me you know that I'm you know from this place and you I'm the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so, who was a descendant of this Amenadi. And he says, and it was the same Amenadi who interpreted the writing which is written upon the wall of the temple by the finger of God, right? And so, um, you know, the people of Ammonihah are supposed to recognize, they're, they're, it's assumed when Amulek's speaking, that the people of Ammonihah, they know who he's talking about. Oh yeah, Amenadi. And they know about this incident. Now, the people of Ammonihah are you know, famous in the Book of Mormon, not for reading their scriptures, but actually for burning their scriptures, right? And so 
Uh, if these people know about this incident of interpreting the writing on the wall of the temple, this had to be a big deal. This had to be common knowledge. And um, so with that and other clues that are in there, in just that small passage uh, and a little bit more surrounding context, uh, Amulek tells us actually a good deal about Amenadi, like like things that we can extrapolate from. And so uh, because of the number of generations back he's going with the Minadai and his family tree, we know that what temple he's talking about. He's talking about the temple of Nephi and the land of Nephi, not the temple of Zarahemla, you know, the temple of Mosiah and the land of Zarahemla after their exodus, right? Um, and so um, I've been able, just like part of what... Um, one thing that you had mentioned was wanting me to talk some about the process mm -hmm. of reconstructing, and it, yeah. it may make sense to say something about I, that I here. I was going to ask you about that. In, in yeah. order to explain this, Absolutely. because this involves the process. Um, so, um, what we've got with the loss or theft of the Book of Mormon's initial manuscript, right, traditionally called the Lost 116 Pages. What we've got is uh, we've got a number of sort of scattered clues, right? Now, a number of these clues, oh, um, a number of these clues are actually um, scattered throughout the Book of Mormon itself. So um, we've got um, all of the small plates, for instance, the the. The small plates are the replacement for the lost manuscripts. It says this in um, section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants and elsewhere. Um, Joseph Smith cited in the 1830 preface to the Book of Mormon. So when we're trying to figure out what was in those lost pages, and the four and a half centuries is the time period covered by the small plates, so that's going to be the time period covered by the lost narrative. When we are trying to figure out what was in that um, narrative, we can look at the small plates and they will give us at least a thumbnail sketch of that missing history. And then uh, there are things later in the Book of Mormon that refer back to earlier events, where, but where it's assuming that we already understand what the events are, even though they're not mentioned in our Book of Mormon text, right? So. This is an example of that, the, the mention of a minidae, right? Because mm -hmm. it's talking about something from uh, this period of uh, when the Nephites lived in the land of Nephi and worshipped at the temple of Nephi, the temple Nephi had built. And that time period was in the Lost Pages. The Book of Omni tells us about how that time period ends. You know, the, the last book in the small plates talks about their exodus from the land of Nephi up to Zarahemla. So um, you've got other flashbacks like that, like in uh, Mosiah 11, it mentions that, you know, the certain people were traveling by the hill that was north of the land Shilom. And that hill, it says, was the same hill that the children of Nephi had used as a resort um, like a place to resort to, right? Um, uh, at the time they fled out of the land. Well, other clues show that's talking... That 
if you just read that, readers of the Book of Mormon are not going to actually be familiar with what that is, right? You, you, you remember, right, like the time that, you know, the Nephites fled out of the land and went to this hill. No, people don't remember that because it's not actually in our text. But it's assumed by the narrator that we will know it, which means it was part of the original text. So you've got various clues like this uh, in, you know, the later part of Mormon's abridgment, in the small plates, in a few of Joseph Smith's early revelations, DNC 10, most explicitly, but also the original manuscripts of DNC 3 and DNC 5. Uh, then you've got statements from outside of the Book of Mormon text where you've got people, as you alluded to, you have people in the 19th century talking about things that were in the Book of Mormon, but we look in our book, these are people who should know what they're talking about, right? People like Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith's father, Joseph Sr., right? And um, uh, certain associates of Martin Harris, including his brother, uh, they mention things that are supposed to have been in the Book of Mormon, but we look, and those are narratives that seem like they would fit in the Book of Mormon, but they're not in our current Book of Mormon. And I argue that's because they were in the lost pages of the Book of Mormon. And so um, the process of reconstructing some of these narratives is, in some ways, it's like putting together puzzle pieces, right? We're never, unless the lost pages show up, we're never going to have all the puzzle pieces, right? But let's say we had a giant picture puzzle on the coffee table here, right? Or, or all the puzzle, we had all the puzzle pieces out. And then, you know, a freak tornado comes through here in Utah, right? And like blows away, you know, 85%, 90% of the pieces. We can actually probably put together enough remaining pieces to at least figure out what this was a picture of. We won't have the whole thing, but well, we can know something about what what it was showing, right? And uh, similar here, another line of evidence that we have that's really relevant to the Aminadi narrative is that the Book of Mormon, scholars have long recognized that the Book of Mormon follows sort of biblical typologies and narrative structures, right? And so... Uh, so, for instance, there's, a, there's what's been called an exodus pattern in the Book of Mormon, and it's, it's sort of reenacting the biblical exodus of Israel, right? And so that actually becomes another type of clue that we can use if you've got a, a Book of Mormon narrative that's clearly following on a biblical narrative's pattern, and then we've got part of the narrative you know, pieces of it, and then we're missing part, the sort of skeletal structure of biblical narrative can maybe help us to, to fill some of those gaps and figure out what was missing. Um, so, so the story of Aminadi, um, it has echoes, uh, it echoes the, most obviously the story of Daniel, right, interpreting the writing on the wall, um, it echoes uh, in a different way, um, uh, which I lay out. It echoes you know, Joseph of Egypt, some things that happened with him. It also echoes God writing on the stone tablets with his finger, right? Because this is what Aminadi is supposed to have done. He interpreted the writing 
which is written on the wall of the temple by the finger of God, right? Well, of course, the stone tablets of Sinai, God writes the commandments on those. Then those tablets are kept in the Ark of the Covenant in the center of the Holy of Holies, which is the center of the temple, right? And so um, the connection of a temple context here in the Amenadi narrative, right, with the writing by the finger of God connects this all back with it's echoing. Uh, one of the biblical narratives that it's echoing is the narrative of Moses and the Ten Commandments. So actually using, you know, as I lay out in the Amenadi chapter, right, like, and won't try to fully lay out here, but using other information that's given to us in the small plates, this Amenadi narrative is in Mormon's abridgment, but there's information in Omni in the small plates that um, appears to describe the, the time period in which Amenadi was living. And so we can take you know, what's said there in uh, Omni and what's said in Alma about Amenadi, and we can put those puzzle pieces together. They fit, mm. right? And um, in this time period, in the year uh, 320, after Lehi leaves Jerusalem, uh, the book of Omni talks about how the people um, were, they were in danger, the Nephites were in danger of being swept off their promised land because they were not keeping the commandments. And under God's covenant with Lehi, the thing they needed to do to stay on the land is they needed to keep those commandments, right? And so um, what I... Um, what I am inferring was written on the wall is actually that very warning, right? That they, they are warned that they need to uh, keep the commandments kind of or else, you know. Um, so it would be maybe similar to, you know, in the story of Lehi and First Nephi, uh, there is writing that appears once on the spindles of the Liahona, and it doesn't actually say in First Nephi what the writing said. It says that everybody, like Lehi and his family and Ishmael's sons, they all are like fearing and trembling because of this. Now, interestingly, it doesn't mention Ishmael like fearing and trembling because of this. And then suddenly, right, the next thing that happens in the narrative is Ishmael dies. So, so it implies that there's some kind of warning given, right, uh, by this writing that appears on the spindle wall. Same way, writing appears on the wall of the temple. It's a warning, and it's apparently the warning: you better keep the commandments, or you're going to get wiped out. Which ultimately, the Nephites who stay in the land of Nephi—that's what happens to them. That's why Mosiah has to lead the rest of them away. And something else that might be interesting, I. I might have touched on this in the book, but I don't remember for sure. Um, at this time, in the translation sequence, uh, Joseph Smith is dictating from behind a curtain. And um, what, what our sources say is that at this point, Joseph Smith is actually using the interpreters and the plates. And what we're told about the method there is he will actually put his finger on one of the characters on the plates 
and then he will see through the interpreter's uh, its meaning. Right? He dictates that to Martin Harris, who's on the other side of the curtain. Um, so what they're doing is they're creating a kind of temple space, right? including a veil. Right? Joseph is wearing the breastplate. He's using a Urim and Thummim. Right. So this is like the biblical high priest acting in his role as high priest within the Holy of Holies. Um, so um, when, jo when this narrative, when Joseph translates this narrative about Amenadi, reading, interpreting the writing that was written on the wall of the temple, he's going to be using this method and he's dictating it to Martin. So I have to think that Joseph and Martin are going to see a parallel, actually, between what happens in the narrative yeah. that Joseph is dictating and what's happening, like the, the process, the translation process through which it's coming forth, right? In both cases, you've got, well, I forgot to mention that in, in the account about the interpreters, like reportedly, the image of the translation is actually kind of projected onto the veil or curtain. Um, so it would be similar to the writing of, by the hand of God appearing on the wall of the temple. So, um, you know, it's really interesting because you made that analogy to how it essentially, when it was doing the translation process, it was like, uh, you know, the, mimicking the, the temple. Do you think Joseph was aware of that while he was doing it? I think he was, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. That's very interesting, and and of course we we didn't talk about this off, uh, before, but you uh, talk about how Joseph may the the, the lost hundred sixteen pages and Joseph himself may have been aware of some temple practices that people thought would have actually been revealed in eighteen forty four. But you think that there's some hints that these temple practices were actually have a much earlier origin. Yeah. So um, the Latter Day Saints. Um, so Joseph is translating these narratives in of the Lost Pages in 1828. They are not going to start building a temple for a while after this, mm -hmm. but they seem to be already creating a kind of temple space. And then um, I kind of give hints. It's sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> for... For let him who hath ears to hear, hear right thing, because Latter-day Saints don't talk a lot about what happens in the temple, right? Um, but um, when you know when Joseph is uh, dictating the translation to Martin, he's dictating these words through a veil. Then Martin records them. Then Martin write, you know, reads them back. So. They're having like a back and forth dialogue through this veil. You've got similar things going on in uh, with the story of the brother of Jared in the part of the Book of Mormon that we have, right? Uh, the brother of Jared it says speaks with the Lord through the veil, right? The the spiritual veil, um, but the Lord you know puts his hand through the veil. Uh, the brother of Jared sees his hand, asks him a question, a series of questions to test his faith and knowledge that begins with the question about his hand. And ultimately, the brother of Jared is admitted into the Lord's presence. You know, and the Lord says, you're redeemed from the fall, which of course evokes the whole backstory of Adam and Eve. And there, there's more, right? Like people are familiar with the, the Nauvoo or present day temple endowment would recognize. There are also things like this in... Um, 
the story of King Mosiah I. So Mosiah I was actually, uh, he was King Benjamin's father, and he was in the, um, he was in, his main, the main part of his story was in the Lost Pages, but then we've got a little bit of a summary, thumbnail sketch of his story in the Book of Omni in the small plates, right? But we have an account um, from Joseph Smith, well, of an interview that was done with Joseph Smith Sr., where he talks about stories of the Book of Mormon, some of which are familiar, and then some of which are not familiar, right? And uh, in these cases, there's one where he talks about um, the Nephites finding the Jaredite interpreters, how they get the Jaredite interpreters. Well, this is a question that our present Book of Mormon text raises, but it never answers. And the reason for that is the answer was actually in the Lost Pages, and Joseph Smith Sr. actually narrates an account of that finding the interpreters to a guy named Fayette Laffham, uh, and Laffham later publishes, you know. And Fayette was not a, a Gentile? He was yeah, oh yeah, he was a Palmyra, he was from a Palmyra family, uh, young, he was a young man, businessman. Um, he was actually a distant cousin to uh, Martin Harris's mother, okay. Rhoda Latham Harris, Latham Harris, um, and uh, yeah, never, never LDS, but very curious about the Book of Mormon in early 1830, before the book, when, when everybody was hearing the buzz about it in Palmyra, but you couldn't yet purchase a copy. So he goes to the, excuse me, he goes to the Joseph Smith Sr. home, uh, and he starts inquiring about the book, and Joseph Sr. gives him a narration both about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and then about what was in the Book of Mormon, and this is where he gives him details that aren't in our present text. But there, there are really significant portions of that narration that, um, you know, tell about the, uh, like I said, the, the finding of the interpreters and it has echoes of Nauvoo endowment there. Like things, things that are like recognizably endowment. And this is, again, Joseph Smith is dictating that in 1828. He institutes the Nauvoo endowment in 1842, 14 years later. Yeah, I found that to be very interesting yeah. <laughs> when we were talking about that. And you know, one of the things, uh, you know, we were talking about the interpreters and one of the things I found so fascinating, and folks, I'm just going to hold this up to the camera and we'll see. I don't know if you'll be able to see anything, but you um, you basically are basing it on Lucy Mack Smith's uh, description of the interpreters. And um, and so you came up with this idea of the old-fashioned spectacles, as was the description. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and you have a compass and a square Mm -hmm. theorizing because the, the, there was talk of diamond shapes. The, well, and, and because Joseph Smith Sr. tells Fayette Laffham that um, the emblems of masonry, the emblems of Freemasonry, are on the top plate of the plates, and that the interpreters then are sitting on top of that plate, mm -hmm. right? So uh, if you picture, like, so, so the, the most prominent emblems of masonry are compass and square, right? Um, and in every Masonic lodge anywhere, 
you have a holy book, usually a Bible, right, sitting on top of the altar, and then you have a compass and square overlaid on top of that Bible, right? And so um, Joseph Smith Sr. is describing, you know, uh, when Joseph Smith Sr. describes the, the Masonic emblems engraved on the top plate, it really suggests minimally you're going to be dealing with the two big ones, compass and square. And uh, yeah, Lucy Max Smith describes uh, the interpreters as being uh, two three-cornered diamonds, she says. Um, we've got um, some similar description um, from uh, Joseph Smith Sr., um, but her mention specifically of them being three-cornered, you know, what has three corners, what shape has three corners, and we all learned this a long time ago, right? Triangles. So it's interesting that like one type of triangle uh, corresponds to a uh, like a, a right angle, which I can't of course quite do exactly right here. But uh, and then uh, you know, so you've got a, a right triangle, right? Corresponds to uh, the shape of a square, which is the you know ninety degrees, or yeah, ninety degrees. And then you've got um, the compass, uh, which can be open to various you know, widths, but usually it's open to 60 degrees to make an equilateral triangle. And she says, yeah, she says that the interpreters were like old-fashioned spectacles. So if you see these modern glasses, right, these are not going to be the, the right type. There are different types of old-fashioned spectacles, but one type are ones, if you want to, I don't hold that up. Uh, one type of old-fashioned spectacles were ones that uh, could be folded over, and in Lucy Max Smith's time, this would be these would be like really old-fashioned. Right? So, when you fold it over, do we want right. to do the reveal? Yeah, sure. Okay, so you fold it over, and they combine to look like what some would say would be the Star of David. Yeah. See, you, you've got you you've, you would have two triangles overlapping. Now that um, so so what exactly the shape would be the star shape that it would make depend would depend on the angle of the triangles, right? Um, but uh, yeah, you've got uh, in the so, so traditionally when you have two triangles folded over each other uh, in the way that that diagram shows uh, within a circle, uh, that is um, the Star of David, right, or the Seal of Solomon, it's also long been called. Um, so interestingly, in the Book of Ether, when the brother of Jared gets the interpreters, he's told that he will, that he is to seal up the interpreters with the, he's supposed to seal up the interpreters and he's supposed to seal them up with the plates that he's writing, right? So what does it mean to seal up the interpreters? Now, so um, I actually argued that um, when the um, lenses of the interpreters are folded over each other and the two triangles are overlaid to make a new shape that within a circle, right, that this is the seal that's being referred to. And it is, it is actually laid on top of the corresponding compass and square symbols on the top plate, as Joseph Smith Sr. describes, and so it is sealed up 
with the plane. Interesting. Well, that's fascinating. <laughs> I, 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 I tell people about this book, and one of the first things I do is I take them to look at this. And everybody's like, really? I've never seen anything like that. So I, I get such a kick out of showing that to people. Um, you know, one of the other things that I find so interesting is that um, you, you, in my mind, I think make a pretty convincing case of rehabilitating Lucy Harris as not being the one that actually stole um, the, the lost 116 pages. Matter of fact, when it was in her possession, you point out, it was it was when it was was not in her possession that it was stolen. Right. And uh, so maybe just talk a little bit right. about that. Right. So so yeah. So the um, the primary culprit for a long time in people's minds, very long time, uh, in the theft of this initial Book of Mormon manuscript is Lucy Harris. And there are reasons why people would point to Lucy Harris, right? Um, we know that she, you know, she, while initially favorable toward the Book of Mormon, uh, she became very much against it, right? And um, she had, I argue that she had reasons to have hard feelings against Martin, because actually he, when he was, the time period during which he was down taking dictation for Joseph, he missed the planting season on his farm, and he missed his own daughter's wedding to be down there. When we look at, when we look at the actual time frames of things, it shows us a lot, right? It helps us understand what's really going on in the past. And so, yeah, she had reason to be upset, multiple reasons. And um, so, in the manuscript, it was in her house, so would she have had more access to it than most people? Well, of course, right? Um, but another reason, I think, why Lucy Harris has become, a couple reasons why she's become a popular uh, culprit, um, one would be that... Um, she was particularly popular uh, as a culprit, uh, a sort of sort of culprit hero, right? For like um, uh, ex Mormons, right? Because she's supposed to be the one who like she she sees through Martin. You know the if you've seen the South Park episode, you know like um, you know Lucy Harris, Lucy her smart, smart 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 Martin Harris, dumb, right? Um, so she's sort of this folk hero of, well, she was the one who was shrewd and smart, and she, and, you know, in pointing to her as supposedly the one who, you know, took the manuscript and then saying, well, she destroyed it, she burned it. Well, then that contradicts what, you know, the explanation that Joseph Smith gives in the Revelation that's now Doctrine and Covenants section 10, right, which says it was stolen by conspiring men, right, and they still had the manuscript and so on. Um, but another reason why I think the Lucy Harris um, theory or, or story is popular is it just makes like a really compelling image, right? The, the disgruntled wife, right? With the, you can just like see the, the fire, right? Her, her casting the pages of the manuscript into the flames and them going up, right? It's a, it's a, it's a real picture, Right, that, that you can have in your mind, whereas, well, unknown people taking the manuscript and hiding it away, that's, there's not much of an image there. So, so I did something that has, had not been done before. I took all the various historical accounts of the manuscript theft, of which I found 40-something, right, and I arranged them all chronologically from when the account was given, right, and, um, then I 
looked at what patterns emerge. So it turns out that very early, uh, Lucy Harris showed up as, as a culprit in people's minds, right? Initially, Martin Harris suspected her as, you know, being the one who had taken the manuscript. Um, and then he, within a few years, he clearly doesn't think that anymore, mm-hmm. right? And later, much later, we get an explanation of that, which I'll get to. Um, but um, when you try to look for what do the sources say about what happened to the manuscript, even the sources that say that Lucy Harris took it, they don't, they're not saying Lucy Harris took it and burned it, okay? Um, the earliest source that mentions um, the idea of Lucy Harris taking the manuscript and burning it is Orsamus Turner in the 1850s, okay? So this is it's something like a quarter century after the manuscript theft when we first have someone suggesting that she, Lucy Harris may have burned it. But what he actually says is she either uh, took it and secreted it, like hid it, or she burned it. In other words, he doesn't know. He thinks it was her, but he's speculating on what she did with it. So then we have a, um, an account a few years later uh, from an anonymous resident of the, the same area, right, in Manchester, saying um, that Lucy Harris had either taken the manuscript and hidden it or, or burned it, and it was supposed the latter. So they're actually, they actually used the same words. They said secreted it or, or burned it. Uh, so they're actually cited, they're, they're relying on Turner, but then they're weighing an opinion on which of Turner's alternatives it was. They think it was the second one, right? Well, then several years after that, you've got um, another local, right, prominent local who publishes a history of the area. And um, he, um, he says that Lucy Harris took it and burned it. So you've got like an evolution within several years, then 12 years or so, from uncertainty to certainty, yep. right? Well, it was it was her. She took it. She and she, what we know what she did with it. She burned it. Yep. But they don't say how they know that, right? right? Nobody says, well, you know, so and so told me, and this this is how I know. Um, so uh, when you line up all these sources, uh, what you see is that the further away from the actual event of the theft you get the more likely people are to say that it was Lucy Harris and that she burned the manuscript. Now think about that from the perspective of a historian, right? Like, as a historian, what I want to see is just the opposite. I want to see that the closer you get to a historical event, the more likely people are to say a certain thing, not the further away from it you get, right? So it's, it's just a compelling story. It's the story that gains traction, and so it becomes basically the story in people's minds, right? But there, there are some wrinkles in that story, right? And one that you alluded to is uh, when we actually look at the sort of history of the theft, like the events that we know about the theft, um, the manuscript is initially, Martin Harris brings it home, he shares it with his wife and other members of the family, and it's in his wife's possession, and he has her locket in her bureau, 
And while it's in her bureau, it's fine. It doesn't disappear. Now, she's the one who has the key to the bureau. But while she's away, she's like away for a day or whatever. She's away for a little while. Um, Martin, uh, someone comes to visit him. And he wants to show them the manuscript. And so he like forces open the bureau, right? Um, and damages her bureau in the process. Well, this is one of the things that makes her angry, right? Angrier. Yep. But notice, but, and then he takes it and he puts it in a desk drawer to which he, only he has the key. And he goes out of town for a couple of days on business. He comes back. There's no sign of tampering on the lock or anything, but the manuscript is gone. Okay. But notice it didn't disappear when it was in Lucy Harris's care. It actually disappears when it's in Martin's care, not in Lucy's. Yep. If she wanted to just destroy it, it was, it was originally just in her bureau. She, she essentially was the custodian of it. She could have destroyed it then. Yep. Why does it wait to disappear until it's in Martin's possession? You know? Um, so uh, also, um, Martin Harris Jr., uh, one of Martin's sons uh, from his second wife out here in Utah, um, the later um, tells details about his father, um, which are which are recorded. Right, he's giving like a sermon, and these details are recorded in the the diary of uh, William Wallace Smith up in Rexburg, and um, at the time. And Martin Harris Jr., among other things he tells about his dad, he talks about the theft of the manuscript. And um, he says that uh, Martin Harris initially thought that his wife Lucy had taken the manuscript, but then when she died, which is actually, she died young. She died at the age of 40 in 1836. Okay? So she dies eight years after the theft. When she died on her deathbed, she denied having anything to do with the theft or knowing where the manuscript was. Okay? On her deathbed. And this is what convinced Martin that it wasn't her. And then he became quite perplexed about, well, who was it? Right? Yeah. But something that we know from a variety of sources about Lucy Harris is um, that Lucy was a devout Quaker. Yep. Okay? And if you know anything about Quakers, Quakers are known for um, emphasizing and really trying to live what are often called within Christendom the difficult, the, the difficult sayings of Jesus, right? So um, teachings like, you know, um, when Jesus says, you know, if anyone smites you on one cheek, turn the other cheek, right? The Quakers are completely nonviolent, right? Also in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus says, you know, don't, don't swear, meaning don't swear oaths, right? Just say, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And if, if your yes always means yes and your no always means no, then you won't need to swear oaths, right? Is basically what Christ is saying there. Well, Quakers believe this. They live by this. Right? They don't swear oaths because everything that they say is supposed to be as if they were under oath. And so Lucy Harris, a devout Quaker, when she's dying and she's about to go meet God, says, it wasn't me and I don't know what happened to them. So do we believe that when she's, as a devout Quaker, 
totally against lying, that being a big deal to them. She's about to go meet God. Then she's going to lie about this? Right. Uh, well, guess who couldn't bring himself to believe that? One of the people who knew her best, Martin Harris. So there are those and there are other reasons to question, yep. you know, whether Lucy, it's, I mean, is it possible? Yeah, it's certainly possible yep. that Lucy had something to do with the theft, right? But there, but it's a narrative that people have, it's, it's a convenient narrative that people have grabbed onto way too easily. And there, there are very good reasons to question that. Well, and that's something we were talking about earlier was, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with scholars, they're always looking at naturalistic uh, explanations, but they're also, many are not believers, yeah. you know. And the one thing that really struck me and what kind of convinced me that your thesis might be correct is we're believers. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, if you've never been a believer, and I'm not trying to, poo-poo people than their beliefs or anything like that, but I just want people to understand that when you have the mindset of a believer, there are certain things that resonate, and, you know, you just don't lie. If you're a Quaker, you just don't lie, or there might be beliefs that we have that we just won't do mm -hmm. because of our faith, right, mm -hmm. uh, that maybe other people would do. Uh, so the idea that Lucy, the, the simple explanation that, that apparently was, well, she just lied, doesn't quite add up if you believe that you're about to meet your maker. Right. And, and then lying was so foundational, not lying is so foundational to Quakerism. Right. right. And I think that really, I think what this book does is provides a, a template for us to maybe have to look at other suspects. Now, folks, we're not going to give out the suspect <laughs> uh, that he talks about because you got to buy the book. There, there are a couple. There, I do. Yeah, you make a couple, pretty compelling case on a on the one gentleman, but we'll yeah. uh, we'll let you the readers buy that. <laughs> <laughs> there, I want to just give a shout out to Greg Cofford Books, your publisher. Uh, I've developed a great relationship with them. Going to give a shout out to our bud uh, Rick Bennett who yeah, uh, loaned you. us the equipment while I'm here in Zion. We really appreciate it. And I just want to remind my viewers to uh, like and subscribe. And uh, don't forget to hit the notification button to be informed when the new video is released. Uh, we're going to get through this pandemic together, folks. Um, peace and be well.